a fun morning already, right? Now we have to recover from that cuteness overload, and I have the challenge of following that in preaching. Um, I also love how many of you got the memo about ugly Christmas sweaters. That's great. Uh, Somebody asked me where mine was, and I said, well, depending on who you ask, I could be wearing it. I don't know. Um, Also, just a pro tip, before you tell someone, hey, I love your ugly sweater, just make sure they intend it to be ugly, because sometimes it's hard to tell. That's all I'm saying. So choose carefully. Uh, But this Sunday, as evidenced by the kids on stage, we're talking about the theme of joy during the Christmas season. We lit the candle of joy. And so that's the theme that we're pushing into. But I want to make this observation. The Christmas season, we talk about, again, the concepts of love and hope and joy and peace as we light the Advent candles. But what I often notice, both in my own life and as I talk to people, is that sometimes the Christmas season is filled with anything besides joy. Have you ever felt that? Uh, we, we live life at a fairly hectic and hurried pace normally. And, and it seems like at, at the Christmas season, that ratchets up to the next level. Because on top of the ordinary pace of life, now we have Christmas presents to buy, and there's Christmas parties to attend, and there's social functions. And sometimes it feels like our already kind of frenetic pace of life is ratcheted up to the next step. And so we light the candle of joy, and sometimes even while we're lighting the candle, you're thinking of the to-do list of the hundred things that you have to get done in the next two weeks to make Christmas all that we think it should be. And and from a biblical perspective, I mean, Advent should be the season of joy. Uh, You heard Pastor Kyle read this passage from Luke chapter 2, where the angels appear to the shepherds. I'm going to read it again, because it it highlights and kind of encapsulates the joy that should be present in this season. This is Luke 2, verse 8. It says, and there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause not just joy. He says, will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. Likewise, in Isaiah chapter nine, this is another common uh, Advent passage. It says this in verse two, It says, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. And and notice in both of those passages, in Luke 2, it says, uh, you will have great joy. In in Isaiah chapter 9, it says, you will enlarge the nation and increase their joy. And the people, three times, it says, they will rejoice, they will rejoice, they will rejoice. And so at Advent, when we reflect on the coming of Christ, this should be a season focused on the joy of the Messiah, the one who brings salvation being here. Now, to understand joy, I I want to define it for us. I think from a biblical Christian theological perspective, joy can be defined as sort of a deep delight of the soul, a sense of well-being rooted in the hope, the trust, and the peace that the presence of God and his grace brings in our life. Right? Joy, joy is deeper than circumstances. We might feel the emotion of happiness, but joy is rooted in something deeper than circumstances. Joy is the sense that deep down things are good and right. And even when my circumstances are challenging, I can trust God's grace in my life. The theologian Karl Barth said it this way. He says, to be joyful is to expect that life will reveal itself as God's gift of grace. I like that. It's to have this anticipation that life is going to continue to reveal itself as God's gift of grace to me. And so especially at Advent, when we reflect on the fact 
That when we were dead in our sins and transgressions, that Jesus sent his son to die for us. I mean, that indeed should fill us with joy. And yet at the Christmas season, when we have a hundred things to do, we often feel anything but joy. So here's my question. If the Advent season is a season of joy, why does it feel so hard and seem so hard to live in a disposition of joy? And, And secondly is this, how can we cultivate a life of joy? So why is it so hard to live a life of joy. And then on the other side of that, how do we cultivate a life of joy? And, and here's my attempt at diagnosing the problem. I think the reason that sometimes the Christmas season and, and life more broadly lacks joy, I think it's a rhythm and a pacing problem. I think we often live life at a rhythm and a pace that is so fast that we cease to live rooted in the sources of joy. And so I think, church, our problem is that we overcommit to things and yet we underconnect with Christ. And sometimes, and it's counterintuitive, sometimes at Christmas, this gets even worse. We overcommit to all sorts of things, and yet we leave no room in our lives to spiritually connect in relationship with Jesus when we should be, especially during Advent, cultivating that time. And so I think when we talk about overcommitting, what I mean is that we sometimes overcommit financially, especially at the Christmas season, right? We feel this pressure maybe to provide all of the, the right presence for all of the right people. And so we feel that, that sort of financial tension that is ratcheted up at Christmas. I think we often overcommit relationally. We feel the expectations of people and family, maybe especially at Christmas, right? Parents expect you to be at certain family get-togethers and functions, and we feel like we've got to please everyone and fulfill all the expectations. And and then on top of this, we're often overcommitted vocationally. We're pouring so much time and energy into our careers, which isn't bad. Work is good. The problem is in all of these arenas of life, relationally, financially, vocationally, we tend to be overcommitted. We tend to be overextended. And then at Christmas, when it ratchets up, it just, it sucks the joy out of us because the rhythm and the pace of our life is so off. Let let me read for you how the psalmist describes this in Psalm chapter 39, verses six and seven. The psalmist says this. He says, surely everyone goes around like a mere phantom. In vain, they rush about heaping up wealth without knowing whose it will finally be. But now, Lord, what do I look for? My hope is in you. Save me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of fools. Now, let me draw your attention to verse six, if we can leave that up there for a second. He says, surely everyone goes around like a mere phantom. What he says is, uh, previously, he talked about how life is so short, mere hand breath in, in the first part of Psalm 39 that I didn't read. He gets here and he says, so many of us, we live life like a ghost. We're never really present in the moment that we're in. He says, in vain, we rush about. Think about how much of life is spent rushing about. So much of, I, I, I feel it. I've got two school drop-offs uh, in two different locations that have to happen 10 minutes apart. And, and, and so I'm rushing literally across town and then back across town. And this week, the number of times that I left my computer at home, got to the church and sat down to write the sermon and go, oh, I don't have my computer. It was multiple days just this week. I'm not even kidding, right? And because I was in such a hurry, I wasn't present when I packed my bag to leave. And so I was like not thinking great things as I drove across town for the fourth, because life is such a rushed hectic, hurried pace. And, and what strikes me about Psalm 39 is he says, we're, we're like a ghost. We're never really present. We're rushing about. And he says, so much of it is in vain. We're, we're heaping up things and wealth and stuff. And it's not even that wealth is bad. It's that we overextend ourselves in this vain pursuit. And when we die, somebody else is going to get it all. And we don't even know who it's going to be. So 
here's what I want us to reflect on this morning. How is your pace of life? Do you feel overextended, overcommitted to a point where you're going, man, I don't know if I can keep up. Now, here's why I think that question is difficult for us to answer. My experience is that the more overextended we are, the less in tune with our own well-being we are. So the more overextended we get, the more we think we're fine and everyone around us is going, are you okay? So so here's what I want to do this morning. We're going to pause for two minutes. And on the screen, uh, this comes from a book called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. It's by a pastor named uh, John Mark Comer. And and he says, these are 10 symptoms that we are living uh, life at a pace that's too fast. These are symptoms that we're living life in a pace that's too rushed. So we're going to pause for two minutes. These symptoms are going to come up on the screen. And I want you to just reflect for a couple seconds. Is this me? Does this describe me? Am I living life in a pace that's too rushed? Go ahead and, and take a look at this. you do? Did you identify with more of those than you would have liked? That as, as you had a moment to just process, even for just a couple of seconds to go, ooh, yeah, that's maybe more present in my life than I would like it to be. And, and, and I think the challenge is, right, our culture wears excess and busyness like a badge of honor, right? When we ask people, how's it going? Ah, oh, you know, I'm super busy. 
And, and we use the term slow almost as, in, as if it's a bad thing. If we talk about work being slow or a movie being slow, what we mean is the movie's not engaging. When we say work is slow, we mean not much is happening. And so we've been conditioned, right, to think that fast and more is better. And so when something's slow, it feels bad. It feels negative. We feel lazy, like we should be doing more. And so excessively being overcommitted is really like a badge of honor in our society, and yet so much of how we live, I think, is a pace that, that is out of sync with how God has called us and designed us and created us to live. In, in that same book, The Ruthless Lim- Elimination of Hurry, John Mark Comer says this. He says, what if more stuff actually equals less of what matters most? Less time, less financial freedom, less generosity, which according to Jesus is where the real joy is. Less peace as I hurry my way through the mall parking lot. Less focus on what life is actually about. Less mental real estate for creativity. Less relationships, less margin, less prayer. Less of what I actually ache for. And that that last question, what, what if the pursuit of more means I actually get less of what I ache for? I think that's a powerful question because I think our souls are hungry and yearning and longing for, for the very concepts that we light the Advent candle and reminder of. Our souls are longing and yearning for hope, for joy, for peace, for love. And yet we live at such a pace and at such a level of overcommittedness that we don't have room and space and margin to experience something as simple as joy. And so what I'm suggesting this morning, church, is that we begin to consciously and intentionally move towards health in the arena of joy. My my argument this morning is simple. We we often cease to experience joy because we live at a rhythm and pace that is antithetical to joy. So as we begin to move towards health, I think we have to understand where joy is found. To cultivate a life of joy, we have to establish a rightly paced and prioritized rhythm rooted in Christ's presence and in his teaching. So if we're going to encounter and and, and establish a rhythm of joy, we have to first of all understand where joy is found and how do we live at a pace that allows us to cultivate a life of joy. So let me look first at Psalm uh, 1611. Here the psalmist begins to describe where you and I can encounter joy. He says this, you make known to me the path of life. I love this, this idea that God reveals, you want to know how to find and experience life? Walk with God. Let him show you the path of life. And the psalmist says, you, God, you alone, show me when when I want to experience life to its fullest and encounter the flourishing that you've designed me for. That that is what God leads us into. He says, you make known to me the path of life. Catch this. You fill me with joy. Where? In your presence. You want to encounter the joy that you and I are created to have. Joy is found in the presence of God, rooted in relationship with him. Likewise, in Psalm chapter 19, verse 8, the psalmist says this. He says, the precepts, that's, that's the teaching, that's the word of the Lord. The precepts of the Lord are right. Catch this, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. And so church, if we're going to understand how to experience and cultivate a life of joy, number one, we have to understand where's joy rooted. It's rooted in the presence of God and it's rooted in the words, ways, and wisdom of God. And for so many of us, we would rather choose our own path and choose our own pace. And so we live overcommitted, pursuing all sorts of things. And we're going, where's the joy? And part of the problem, church, is we're overcommitted and yet underconnected to Christ. And the Advent season is a season where Jesus reminds us, come back to me. Leave room and space to experience my presence. 
Be in awe and wonder again at the advent, at the arrival of Jesus, the one in whose presence joy is truly found. Now, what I love about this reality is that not only does scripture teach us this, but Jesus models this kind of right rhythm and pacing. In Mark chapter one, if you have a Bible, you can turn there with me. We're gonna look at Mark chapter one, verse 35. And what I find fascinating about the life of Jesus is we know very little about the first 30-ish years of Jesus' life. Most of what we have in the gospels is the three years of Jesus' public ministry. And so it's almost as if in Jesus' life, there's 30 some years of preparation and now he has three years to launch this ministry. And and, in my mind, if I have three years to launch something, I'm going to give it my all. I'm going to pour my life into it because I've only got three years and that's a short time span. And and as you read Mark chapter one, uh, I love the gospel of Mark because this is like the action movie gospel. Mark is short and it moves quick. So already in chapter one, let me just kind of summarize this for you. In Mark chapter one, verse nine, Jesus is baptized. After he's baptized, he immediately goes into the desert and is tempted for 40 days. In verse 14, Jesus kicks off the public ministry by proclaiming the time has come, the kingdom is near, repent and believe. That's kind of the inauguration of his ministry. In verse 16, Jesus starts recruiting the disciples. He starts calling his team together. He's building uh, this group of men who are gonna follow him. In verse 21, Jesus drives out an evil spirit. In verse 29, it begins this narrative where Jesus heals many people. We get to verse 33 and it says, the whole town was gathered gathered at his door. Just reading that summary, I feel kind of exhausted, right? Now, if, if, I, if I'm Jesus, which I'm not, by the way, right? But if I'm in that mindset and I go, man, the whole town, they need me. They're expecting me. They're waiting for me to minister. If, if I'm in that role, I'm going to go, well, I better pour into the people. I've only got three years. And so there's already all of this activity. And then verse 35 of Mark chapter one, I just find baffling right? Here's Jesus. The whole town is gathered at his door. They need spiritual healing. They need physical healing and they know Jesus can bring it. And Mark chapter 35 says this, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him. And when they found him, they exclaimed, everyone is looking for you. Jesus replied, let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages so I can preach there also. That is why I've come. So we traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. And what strikes me, church, is right at this sort of fever pitch of activity, the whole town waiting at the door, Jesus says, pause. I'm going to get up before anybody else and I'm going to withdraw to a solitary place to pray. Now, here's what I don't want you to hear this morning, right? In, In some ways, this feels like the stereotypical church message of, you're not doing enough spiritually, add Jesus to your to-do list. And it could feel like, well, the pastor's trying to get like, I don't leave room for Jesus, so now I gotta add one more thing and and try to fit in spirituality. Church, I'm not trying to guilt us into a spiritual to-do list in which we add another thing. I'm trying, church, to sound an alarm bell, to say we are soul sick and spirit burned out and we need something more than what we're already getting. And what I'm trying to help us acknowledge is that Jesus wants you to experience joy and joy is found in him. And what he's saying is make room for me because you are soul sick and need something deeper than what you already have. And what happens, church, is our pace is so fast and we're so overcommitted that at the end of the day, we engage in what, what the assessment called escapist behaviors, right? 
Rather than finding joy in Jesus, we go home, we sit on the couch, we turn on a Netflix documentary, and we scroll Instagram until we get increasingly more anxious about the boat that person bought and the vacation they went on and their relationship that's really good while mine's falling apart. And, and we play this comparison game all the while being soul sick from a pace that's too fast. I'm not trying to guilt us into doing more. I'm trying to challenge us that the way that we're already going can't be sustained. And so as I look at Jesus' example, I'm struck by several things. Number one, Jesus makes connection with the Father a priority. That's why he gets up in the morning. Jesus doesn't find time, he makes time. I had a friend of mine when I was trying to start a new discipline. I don't even remember now what it was. It might have been working out or nutrition. And I was complaining like, oh, I, don't, I don't have time to meal plan or I don't have time to, to go to the gym. And they, they, they told me, they said, you need to stop telling me you don't have time and, and confess to yourself that you just don't want it to be a priority. Because the things that are priority, we make time for. And, and, and I'm struck by the reality that Jesus, with all of the town at his door, makes connecting with the Father a priority. And, and notice, not only does Jesus make connection with the Father spiritually a priority, but number two, Jesus finds space away from the distractions. It says very early in the morning, right, he's making time for this. He gets up and he leaves the house. And I think, church, not only do we need to make time intentionally to cultivate relational connection with Jesus, but I think, church, we need to step away from the distractions. For me, I cannot, I am not a Bible app person as much as I want to be, because as I'm reading the Bible app, I get that email notification, I get that text message, and, and I know you can turn do not disturb off, but it's too easy for me to turn do not disturb back off and then get all the notifications. I just can't do it. For me, part of leaving behind the distractions is to say, I need to set my phone aside. And for me, I need to engage in the paper because this doesn't give me notifications, right? And I'm saying, church, we need to make connection with Jesus a priority, set aside the distractions. But notice this. Thirdly, Jesus is purposely spiritually focused with the time. I'm not just talking about mindfulness, I'm not just talking about white space and, and space to think creatively. What I'm talking about is a moment where we create time, step away from distractions, and look what it says. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, uh, left the house, went off to a solitary place, catch this, where he prayed. That's such a simple phrase, but it, it speaks to me of the spiritual intentionality of this moment. He makes the time, he leaves the distractions, and he uses that moment to pray, to relationally connect with the Father. But beyond that, what I'm struck by is number four, that Jesus refuses to let the expectations of other people drive his pace. Notice what it says in verse 36. Simon and his companions went to look for him, Jesus, and when they found him, they exclaimed, everyone is looking for you. Jesus, the whole town is at your door. And, and so it would have made sense for Jesus to say, well, I can't get up and, and go pray. These people need me. I need to fulfill their expectations. And yet Jesus says no to their expectations and he roots his life in the Father. Now, I'm not arguing for laziness. I'm not arguing that you should be uh, totally relationally disconnected in a way that's harmful. What I'm saying is we need to evaluate where we're already relationally and vocationally and financially overcommitted. We need to be willing to withdraw, to step back from all of that and to have spiritually intentional moments where we are disconnected from the distractions, where we are spiritually rooted in saying no to the expectations of people so we can say yes to the presence of God. Finally, it, it strikes me that Jesus himself ministers out of a place of spiritual connectedness. 
It's almost as if the expectations of people are so much that Jesus goes, I have to withdraw and pray. If I don't withdraw and spend time in solitude and prayer, I have nothing to offer. And so it strikes me when I read in Luke chapter 5, verse 16, that, that this, is not, this is not a one-off moment where Jesus prays. Luke 5, verses 15 and 16 says this. It says, the news about him, about Jesus, spread all the more. So people are, are learning about who Jesus is and what he can do. Catch this. So that the crowds of people came to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. So, so here's Jesus. He's preaching and teaching. And the crowds hear that he can bring healing. The crowds heal, hear that he can bring forgiveness. And, and they're flocking to him. And Jesus' notoriety, his influence, all of that is increasing. And what our society would say is when you have momentum, you've got to push in. You've got to seize the moment. And yet in verse 16 it says, but Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Not just occasionally, not when he felt like it. Jesus often withdrew. And, and what I find for myself, church, is I am living a rhythm and pace of life that Jesus himself did not live and did not model. Jesus often withdrew. I am often pushing in beyond my boundaries, beyond my limits to a point of detrimental well-being. How about you? And as I read this, I go, man, if Jesus often withdrew, how much more do I need to have moments where I withdraw? And, and by the way, if you go online, blueletterbible.org, free concordance, you can search it. Select Matthew through John, the Gospels, and just type in the word withdrew or withdraw and look at the number of places where Jesus withdrew. It's fascinating. And in a culture of push in, Jesus withdrew and reconnected with the Father so he had depth out of which to minister spiritually. So here, here's, here's what I want to leave us with. Three questions. Where are you overcommitted? Is there a, an arena of life where you go, I have pushed in too hard, too fast for too long, and I feel it. As, as I watched the hurried life assessment, there were things I identified in me that I, I don't want to leave unchecked. Secondly, what do you need to say no to to cultivate a sustainable rhythm of spiritual connection? And finally, look at your schedule. Where can you prioritize a place of connection with Christ? What does it look like for us to say, I don't longer want to live overcommitted and underconnected, but I want to experience and encounter the joy that Jesus calls us to. And again, church, I'm not trying to guilt us into doing more. I'm asking us to withdraw and find the fullness of life that Jesus invites us into. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for, um, I thank you for just the rhythm of the church year. And I thank you for the rhythm of Advent that calls us to step back a little bit and to think and reflect on what your arrival means for us, Jesus. That like Isaiah 9 says, on those living in a land of darkness, a light has dawned. And so Father, we recognize that in our broken world, the light of your truth, the light of your hope, the light of your redemption is dawning even now. And Father, we want to step into the light of your truth, into the light of your hope. We want to live, Lord, in relationship with you. Jesus, you are Emmanuel, God with us. Lord, help us to be present back with you. As you invite us into relationship, Father, forgive us for the places where we have chosen everything else ahead of you. But I pray, Father, that we would take seriously this call to live rooted in relationship with you, to encounter the joy, Lord, that you bring. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.